Welcome to the Politics of Everything. I'm Amber Danes, your host and podcast producer. This is a half hour of power, a podcast dropping every week where I unpack the politics of everything, from money to motherhood, nutrition to narcissism, startups to secularism, the environment, quality, and much, much more. Our guests are seasoned in the field or topic of their choice, even if you've not heard of them yet. This is a non-partisan show. So while I love exploring varied views and get a buzz from a healthy debate of ideas, this is not a purely blue, white, green program. Please subscribe, tune in and enjoy the politics of everything. Water management and the policies behind it are something we all need to get our heads around, whether you live in a big city, a small town, a coastal region or a remote community. I'm deeply passionate about the water sector, having worked closely with the New South Wales State Government during the recent drought of 2018 to 2020, leading communications in areas such as community engagement and stakeholder management, which has set off my thinking about how we approach water policy in the 21st century. A basic human right, access to clean, safe water for drinking and daily use remains not something everyone in the world has access to. Recent droughts in Australia seem to be intensifying as the impacts of climate change make extreme weather events more common. Today's guest is the CEO of the Australian Water Association, Corinne Cheeseman, and she's discussing the politics of water management. The AWA is Australia's largest water network of professionals and practitioners who manage our most precious resource, water. It offers a platform where members, companies and individuals share, connect and inspire to drive and inspire a sustainable water future. Corinne has spent most of her career working in water, including many years at Australia's largest water utility, Sydney Water, in roles ranging from environmental management to water quality to community education, and in recent years, she led data and analytics teams to build new capabilities, solve problems, and create value through data. She's helped develop data strategies and capabilities in large organisations such as the Reserve Bank of Australia and the Australian Energy Market Operator, AMO, as well as not-for-profits such as Amnesty International and the Smith Family. At the AWA, she has the opportunity to work with members from across the country in water utilities, universities and research organisations, consultants, contractors, suppliers at all levels of government every day. Her teamwork has over 300 volunteers to provide platforms, networking experiences and business opportunities, which lead to tangible benefits through water management for communities across Australia, as well as its developing countries in our region, particularly Vietnam, Cambodia and Indonesia. From a young age, Corinne has been curious about health and the environment, and she particularly loved science at school, which led her to her first degree in biology. And after a few years working in a water laboratory, she completed her master's in environment management. It was, however, her passion for working with people who shared a strong sense of purpose that has been a constant throughout her career. Corinne also likes to think she's passed her passion and sense of purpose onto her two daughters. And so welcome to the podcast, Corinne. Thank you, Amber. It's great to be here. Excellent. So we know what you studied at uni. So when you were a kid, did you just want to be a pure scientist? And kind of where did that sort of thinking lead you in terms of your early career? Yeah, I I guess I didn't really have a very clear idea about what I wanted to do from a very young age, but I was really curious about a range of things. So quite a broad all-rounder at school, like to do things that were quite practical, but also was quite studious. And so when I got to the end of my school, I really enjoyed sciences, particularly biology. And so that really set me up for, well, what do I want to do? Given I wasn't quite clear about what job I would end up in, I took up a biology degree 
And I actually thought I'd go into health sciences because I was also curious about, you know, being healthy and the human body. And most people who did biology degrees at that time went into roles that were more in the medical sort of health area. But I landed my first job in a water laboratory and analysing water samples in the environmental sort of area. And I loved it. So I feel really very lucky that I found my way to water very early in my career. Absolutely. So what role does the Australian Water Association play in water management planning and beyond? For a lot of people, it wouldn't be an organisation that would be a household name necessarily. So what do you really advocate for and how do you operate? Yeah, we work with people who work across the entire water cycle, both in urban and rural parts of Australia. So we are a not-for-profit association for water professionals and we have over 5,000 individual members and over 500 corporate members But really what we're about is engaging with really committed volunteers who want to give their time to shape and deliver things like content, activities and programs across a really broad range of topics and projects. So it's quite broad in terms of the span of water management planning, uh, obviously in Australia. And I guess the best way to describe the role that ABUA plays is through our purpose, which, as you mentioned earlier, we share, connect and inspire positive change as we drive together towards a sustainable water future. So we work with people in the field on technical and news articles and publications, conferences and events, awards and recognition, networking and mentoring, and also in industry and international programs. So we really foster that knowledge sharing and innovation and our members stay connected through us throughout their entire career. That's a really great summary of something that sounds very big in many ways. So what do you think some of the largest issues facing water policy are at this time and how would you like to see that evolve or what changes would you like to see while you are CEO? So I think one of the biggest things that we're grappling with is uncertainty and particularly around those projections and predictions around the impact of climate change and drying, particularly in, in southeastern Australia. And so that really is leading to projections of really significant declines in rainfall and also runoff. So they're some of the biggest challenges that we're facing today and it's projected to get worse. In terms of policy, look, there is, there are, there is work that is going on to look at how we can look at some more robust water management processes to allow our systems to adapt more effectively as we you know, see this shift in baselines due to climate change. I think it requires an end-to-end approach for all water managers across the entire water cycle, which includes policymakers as well as practitioners and professionals in, in irrigation as well and catchments and also in you know technology and other parts of the private sector. So what we need to do in, in water policy is to have this shared vision and think about how we can influence policy changes that are needed, taking that very big picture view, thinking about competition and the increased water scarcity issues that we have, but also getting better information and predictions about how we can manage things like extreme weather conditions and drought, but this will also require better planning and a more diverse range of options. So there there is a a lot to do in in the water sector and governments more broadly are are talking about this and, and working towards that. We sort of can't avoid it, I guess, because climate change is here, it's real. So what attention does that get in the water management debate and how can that sort of be navigated with much more, I guess, agreement on what what that means for for water? 
So certainly water management is directly impacted by climate change. Um, it's the core of what we do now, anything from floods to droughts, and obviously they're becoming more frequent and extreme. So there has been a lot of science and debate around this area in people who work in water management and the challenges that it presents and how we work with those are not new. So I'd say that the, the way that it manifests itself in all the areas that are, are leading to this are around really the development of new technologies, innovation and capabilities, but also that, I guess, growing of resilience and those strategies and plans, which include a diverse range of water supply options, as well as looking at things like the demand side, which we have seen a big shift in efficiencies that have really helped on the demand side, and that is still part of the solution. Water utilities also are looking at not being part or contributing to the problem. And you will see that a lot of water businesses now are reducing their, their carbon emissions and looking at innovations. And they generate, for example, hydropower meets to meet their energy requirements in treatment plants. And we actually have some examples of where water utilities are some of the first in the world in Australia that are signing, signing up to Global Pledge to net zero and promoting and working towards generating renewable energy solutions and reducing their greenhouse gas emissions to achieve those targets set by the UN. Absolutely. I think that's really important to at least don't set it, you don't measure it, you don't do it in, in my experience of anything, let alone water management. The WHO said in 2017, 71% of the global population, so that's around 5 billion people, used a safely managed drinking water service that is one located on premises available when needed and free from contamination. However, 785 million people still lack even basic drinking water, including 144 million people who are dependent on surface water. We know globally at least 2 billion people use drinking water sources that are contaminated by faeces, which is just appalling, I think, in this day and age. But by 2025, half of the world's population will be living in water-stressed areas. So how can water access become more equitable? And I guess, is it up to us as a wealthier nation amongst other wealthier nations to help other nations get that basic human right of clean access to water happening faster? Are there any examples that you can think of of where that's happening or what we might aspire to? Yes, definitely. And I think it's important to recognise that access and equity to clean water is certainly something that not only impacts obviously the human health and the environment in developing countries, but is really the basis of a strong national economy and productivity, both in cities and rural communities. So it's really a core pillar and a, a basic need for these countries to be able to, to move forward in that way. So what we're doing with some of our members and in partnership with some of the countries we work in, in particular Vietnam, Cambodia and Indonesia, is working with them on not only obviously providing funding and the means to develop technologies and solutions to provide clean and safe access to water, but actually working with them in partnership right from the, the government level. So we're working with the Australian government to connect the Australian water sector, people, expertise and technology with our partnering countries. And we're doing things like running policy forums so we can set up the frameworks in these countries that, that suit their needs but are based on the experience that we have in Australia. So what are the benefits and, and what are the learnings that we can share? And then connecting, for example, water utilities together to share knowledge and build capabilities and look at the right technology solutions in country. 
So there are some really good initiatives and some successes that we've had around this capacity and capability development, but starting with that framework of policy and regulatory frameworks that enable the growth and sustainable nature of developing better water and sanitation in these countries. The other thing that we're doing is working with the private sector in Australia to do things like technology installations, and that includes things like training and ensuring that there are business development opportunities and implementing small-scale decentralised drinking water systems in both remote and rural areas in Vietnam, for example. And in that country, we've actually looked at over several years, six or seven years, we've delivered small-scale decentralised drinking water systems that produce over 300,000 litres of water per day and service over 130,000 people. So very tangible examples that you would think when you're thinking about investing in solving this problem. But I think the success is that capacity building and also that that regulatory and policy framework, government to government sharing, that really will make this sustainable and solve these problems in the long term. Yeah, no, there's some great thinking there. And I think some action is is kind of in play, which is really important. Australia's most populated city, Sydney, faces water shortages of around 13% within 20 years if the current growth of population continues, as the government has predicted. Having worked closely with a range of authorities in the government and beyond during the drought of 2019, we were looking at less than 18 months left of drinkable water for Greater Sydney at the at the worst of part of the drought, if you like. So that doesn't seem such a far-off prediction for what the future looks like. A recent New South Wales strategy paper recommends increasing desalination, stormwater recycling and efficiency measures but hasn't really focused on drinking purified wastewater as much. What do you believe needs to happen to ensure we do make smart decisions on how we use water in a big city like Sydney? Yeah, that's a very good question. And I think in the simplest way, it really is about looking at all of the options that you have at your disposal and that need to be very diverse. So certainly purified recycled water needs to be considered alongside solutions like desalination, water efficiency, dams, recycling for non-drinking purposes as well. So there is a lot that we have done, as I said, around using water wisely. But we know that, for example, when we're looking at growth and climate change and droughts and obviously augmentation or, I guess, updating an infrastructure, we need to look at other solutions. Because once we set that plan or we start these initiatives, they are going to be with us for a long time. So we want to keep that door open for a diverse range of options. In terms of purified water for drinking, that needs to be part of the mix, but the community needs to come along with that. So we need to ensure that the community is engaged and understands what that means. And there are really some successful examples overseas where this has happened, where we might not have had community acceptance early on, but over time by working with the community, bring them along with a range of options including purified recycled water, they have been able to look at those options as part of the solution. So things like demonstration plants where the community can get really get access and, and see how this option might be safe, how it is proven from a technology perspective, it's cost effective and actually can feed into the mix of the way that sustainable water can be provided. And I know there is some work going on in terms of that idea in Sydney and also in the Hunter region, 
But I think it's not just about that, right? We need to, that needs to be part of the solution. But as I said, there still needs to be a diverse range of options and community engagement will be key in considering which of those options are going to work in each place, including Sydney. Absolutely. So changing tack a little bit, regional communities by and large have become accustomed to, I guess, the extreme seasonal changes that we experience, particularly in a country like Australia. Droughts, floods, bushfires, which we all recall a couple of years ago, impacting livelihoods in their communities as well as their access to water. How can they be better catered for? Is it a different kind of thinking for a regional or remote community versus a city? Yes and no. I think they have slightly different challenges. Obviously, the the way that their economy relies on water can be quite different, but obviously there still is that basic need for water for the community. So thinking about those basic services and defining what these are in the context of, of regional towns is a really important part of this. And understanding what the agreed drought plans, including contingency supplies and actions might be early, will also help us to be better prepared. While I agree that these communities have developed some resilience. We know that things are going to get worse over time with the extreme climate conditions. And there is a role for government to play and obviously thinking about those community obligations. The other things to consider, which are probably more relevant or obvious in regional towns, are that balance between the need for water for the environment, as well as obviously for things like agricultural use, and then also Indigenous access to water, which is also part of the, the next national water initiative that is currently being looked at by governments. Absolutely. So National Water Week this year had a theme of caring for water and country, and that's a great theme. I think there's a lot that can be sort of played out under that theme, obviously recognising the importance of our waterways in our own lives, caring for water and country, obviously aiming to deepen our understanding of the First Nations people's knowledge of protecting and sustaining our water and our land for the past 65,000 years. How can we access that knowledge and make it become more part of our daily water management plans, not, not just for this celebration, but I guess for the long term, so it's a more holistic approach? Yes, that's a good question. And it was really a great opportunity during National Water Week to think a bit more deeply about this and think really about what that means not only to Indigenous people, but also to all of us in terms of actually caring for water and country, because it plays a role in all of our lives. And I think we all have been much more connected to our local communities over the past 18 months. But the, I guess the thing to recognise is that there is a lot of work that's been done and we are working to engage with Indigenous peoples and communities on some of these areas. I think the, the time has come to move a bit past engagement and ensure that we're getting their knowledge embedded in the solutions that we're now planning for and giving them a seat at the table. So I don't think it's only about engagement. It's actually about ensuring they're involved in decision-making and that we actually enable through a range of different approaches the opportunity for them to play a role in terms of leadership roles, for us to listen and work side-by-side side with them and the knowledge that they hold but also being very respectful in terms of what the best outcomes are for their communities and also the community more broadly. So I think while we've certainly made a lot of progress, it's still we've still got a far way to go. And while we started talking about this at National Water Week, we certainly will continue that. And I'm looking forward to seeing how we can really genuinely collaborate with Indigenous communities around water management and planning. Absolutely. Who have been your greatest mentors over your career? Maybe one or two people that really stand out and what have they taught you about life and work? 
Yeah, I've, I've actually been thinking about this a lot lately. Um, I guess earlier, a bit earlier in my career when I was working in water, I had the opportunity to kind of change direction in terms of moving into using data more. It was quite a new area a decade ago. And I had a leader, his name was John Werder, that really fostered, uh, I guess, a confidence in me to do something different that I didn't really have the technical expertise in. I had a lot of experience in water, but not necessarily in using data to solve some of these problems. So I really reflect that he really had a big impact on me because I spent the next decade of my career moving still in water, but, you know, approaching it from a different place. So that had a re- that was very impactful and he taught me a lot about having confidence in myself to jump in the deep end and, and try new things. And then more recently, when I took on the role at AWA as CEO in May 2020, in the middle of the COVID pandemic, I had the opportunity to work under our past president, Carmel Crow, and also more recently, Louise Dudley is, is the chair and the president of AWA. And both of these women have very different and diverse backgrounds. They are obviously very intelligent and are very strong leaders. But I've learned so much about them, particularly at trying times. And I guess what I find very inspiration about Louise and Carmel is that they always bring the best of themselves to every conversation and meeting. And there have been some very challenging conversations and meetings over the last 18 months. So I really appreciate being able to work under their leadership and and they really are very important to me. Excellent. That's great to hear how that's played out for you. As we wrap up today, what would be your final takeaway message on the politics of water management? Well, it's such a broad topic, really. But if we think about the challenges ahead and particularly around climate change and the recovery from COVID, I think it's really fundamental that we take the opportunity to think about health, environment and economic outcomes that support sustainable communities. So I'm very optimistic and I'd love to encourage people to think about the engagement and collaboration that's needed and that we all have a part to play. So I'd really encourage people to stay in touch with it, get involved and and take part in some of these important conversations that we're going to be having over the next over the coming months and years. You've covered so much in the time we've had today and I really appreciate, I guess, the depth of knowledge but also the way in which you've kind of made this information very accessible for people. So I think that's part of the challenge, I think, with such a big area like water management and the challenges that the world face. If you do want to connect further with Corinne Cheeseman and the Australian Water Association, there will be some links on the show notes. Until next time, keep well. Thanks so much for listening today. If you've enjoyed the politics of everything, I thrive on your feedback. So please add a short review and share the podcast with your network through Apple, Spotify, and all the usual suspects. I'm always on the hunt for new and diverse guests. So if you or someone you know has a fresh idea you're busting to get out there, please email me at amber at amberdanes.com and my crew will get back to you very soon.